And we're going to have our Bible reading now, which is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you'd like to use the black church Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find it on page 887. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thank you. First four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and... John, that's right. And these four books are something like a documentary, if you will, of the life of Jesus Christ. These four authors bring their telling of the life, the death, the significance, and the person of Jesus Christ on full display. And each of them do in their own very unique way, and that is true for John. And one of the ways John wants to get across who Jesus really is is that he includes seven key signs of Jesus in the first half of his gospel, of his documentary biography of the life of Jesus. Now, John indeed says, there's loads more I could have included here, but what John does is he uses these seven signs to say something about who Jesus really is. So this morning and for the next six Sundays, right up until Easter, we're going to be looking at the seven signs in the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at the wedding day today, healing of the nobleman's son, healing of the lame, food for the multitude, walking on water, healing of a blind man, and raising Lazarus. Some of those are going to sound familiar to some of you in here. And through each of these, John is recording something key about the life, the work, the person, and the significance of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the wedding at Cana. Now, we often look at this story and think to ourselves, isn't this just Jesus giving in to his mum's request? You know, Jesus saying, you know, I'm not ready to begin my ministry, but all right, mum, I'll change the water into wine and save this rather uh, embarrassing social situation. But I tell you what, it is so much more than that. This is loaded with tons of symbolic things we have got to see this morning. You see, through this first sign, John is showing us what Jesus came to do. And here's what we're going to find out. Jesus came to start, Jesus came to state, and Jesus came to show. Three key things. Jesus came to start, Jesus came to state, and Jesus came to show. 
Now, I want to pray once more before we dive into this first sign in John's Gospel, so I'd love it if you could pray with me. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We know in your word you speak. So this morning, Lord, speak to us. We want to hear your voice and we want to be receptive like sponges to hear what you have to say, to find out the significance of this first sign. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, since we're doing a series on the seven signs of John, I want to think a bit about the function of how a sign works. Now, to do this, we're going to look at some random signs that you might find on the roadside here in the UK, okay? We're going to be looking at some random signs, and I want you to tell me what these signs are, right? Tell me what they are. And if you can't answer them, you're not allowed to drive home because it'd be dangerous. Okay, Let, let's, do, let's start with some basic ones, all right? That's a T. But what does it mean? Come on, come on. It's a dead end, right? I think it means a dead end. I hope it does. That means a dead end. Okay, what about this one here? Does anybody know what that means? No stopping. Very good. Very good. Okay, what about this one? You need this around here a lot. That means the road narrows, doesn't it? Okay, the road narrows, right? Hey, what about this one here? This one makes me die. It doesn't mean that your car's on fire. Do you know what this means? This means no explosives in your car beyond this point. <laughs> why on earth would you need that? I, I hope you never need that. Why, where would you use this sign? I've got no idea. Here we go. What about, what about this one? Yeah, no flying motorbikes. That's right. That is exactly what... No, I don't know. I think that means motorbikes and cars allowed through this area. I think that's what it means. This one makes me die. <laughs> now, now that, that means watch out for elderly people. But if you look, you'll never look at this the same. It looks like that old lady's pinching his bottom. You see that? <laughs> Every time I see this, I just die. You will never look at that the same, will you? Okay, and the, and the last one here. What's this mean? Bring your umbrella. That's right. Yeah, okay, great. Okay, so here's, here's, how, here's how a sign works. Signs point beyond themselves. Signs point beyond themselves. So any sign you see on the side of the road, any sign you would find in this church building, any sign, you could go out to the corner here and find a sign that directs you to the different villages and towns around here because those signs will point beyond themselves. That's how a sign works. Now as we dive into these seven signs of John, we need to take that with us, recognizing that as wonderful and as miraculous and as supernatural, these signs, as they are that, that's true. But each of these signs are pointing us to a profound spiritual truth about the person, the work, and the significance of Jesus Christ. And the same is true for the wedding at Cana. That's what we're looking at today. We're seeing water being turned into fine wine. And as wonderful as that is, just like any other sign in life, this points to a profound spiritual truth beyond itself. See, what we're going to find is John is revealing to us in recording this sign what Jesus has come to do. He's come to start, he's come to state, and he's come to show. So I want to, what I want to do this morning is kind of sketch out, we want to map out the story and structure it for ourselves before we get into those three key points. Just familiarize ourselves and make some observations as we go through the story, then want to come back and think about what Jesus came to do. So why don't we see the setting in the first two verses here. John sets it out for us. Then on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, verse 2. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So here we go. We've got Jesus, his mother, Mary. Jesus and the disciples who are following him up until this point are at this wedding in the town of Cana. 
Now, weddings today are a big deal, and rightly so. We love weddings. People will spend tens of thousands of pounds on their weddings. It is a significant day. It's significant for the couple who are getting married. It's something they want to remember for the rest of their lives. It's, for many people, the best day of their entire life. Uh, as weddings are significant for the family, near family, and then extended family. Weddings are a big deal. That's why we spend so much money on weddings. We love them. But in the first century, take this and explode it even more. Weddings are even more significant. Weddings are significant not just for the family, not just for the extended family, not just for the couple. Weddings are going to be significant for the entire community. These are events that don't just go on for an afternoon and an evening. These are events that go on for as much as an entire week, and the whole town is invited. Weddings are big deals. So look at verse 3. Mary recognizes a disaster. Uh, and the wine ran out. Uh, when, the wine ran, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now this is a really big deal. If the wine ran out at one of our weddings, I'm guessing we would feel a little bit put out. You might say, oh, I, was, I, was, I was looking forward to a drop of Merlot with the main cause, but I can get over it. I'll, I'll, have, I'll have some tonic water instead. I, I will deal with it. It doesn't seem like a big deal. I'll settle for something else. But in the first century, no wine, it means no more party, no more wedding. This is a huge social embarrassment for the wedding organizers. It is a big deal, and Mary recognizes that. And so she says there's no more wine. But look at how Jesus responds. It seems a bit abrupt, but I'll explain it here. And Jesus said to her in verse 4, Woman, what, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, now if I... If I talk to my own mother like that, I'll expect a clip around the back of the head. I wouldn't, I, well, but but this, is, this is, most scholars say, this is a respectful way for, for, for Jesus to, to talk to his mum. You know, if you come from the southern states in America, you might refer to your parents as sir, yes sir, or yes ma'am. And that's a very respectful thing to do. So this is a similar way that Jesus is addressing his mum. And, and then what Jesus says, I, I think essentially is, I'm very different to you. What has this got to do with you and me? I, th I think that's what Jesus is saying here. But then there's that key statement afterwards. My hour has not yet come. I want you to log that in your mind because we'll come back to that a bit later. That's a key statement. But then comes Jesus' instructions in verse 6. Now there were six stone jars there. Look at this next bit. Log this in your mind. That for the Jewish rites of purification. Seems weird that they would be there, but okay. Each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So we're saying... Anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons, let's take it down the middle, 150 gallons, this is going to be round about 1,000 bottles of wine. This is a big deal. And they filled them up to the brim, and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the wine, tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn, it, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, now here's another key statement, I want you to log this. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then John underscores this sign by saying, this first is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, often we look at this story and think to ourselves, isn't, it, isn't that Jesus saying, all right, mum, 
I will do this. I wasn't really ready to start my ministry, but because you've given me a little nudge right here, and because there's a need, and we need to save the embarrassment, then I will get my ministry started. Well, actually, there's so much more going on here. Because what we see in this first sign is John showing us what Jesus came to do. Three key things. Jesus came to start, he came to state, he came to show. Let's look at the first one. Jesus came to start a new era. Jesus came to start a new era. Now, now how, how would we know that from this story? How would we know that Jesus has come to start a new era? Well, there's three clues that we find in this passage. Firstly, where does he find the water? The water is in six stone jars. But what were they used for? The Jewish rites of purification. Now, this is a strange place to find these kinds of jars. Normally, these would be placed somewhere around the temple. So as the Jews were approaching the temple, they were used to wash themselves to remind themselves that you don't approach the presence of God unless you're clean. That's what they, that's what they would remind themselves. So they'd use these jars there. But what are they doing at a wedding in Cana, miles away from Jerusalem, a long way from the temple? What was going on here? It's possible that this could be a priestly family. It's possible that they just had a really high bar of purification in the household. Maybe. But I think it's telling that John includes the fact that there's six of these stone jars. Remember, the number seven connotates, it shows us completion. Six isn't quite complete, isn't finished yet. Six Jewish, six stone jars used for the Jewish rites of purification. Okay, that's the first clue. Second clue is what the master of the feast said to, says to the bridegroom. Essentially, normally we have good wine first and then the rubbish wine second. But what's happened right here is we had that wine first, and then we've had the fine wine next. That, that's a key statement, and that's key to what's going on here. Third clue we have is the significance of fine wine in the Old Testament. Because fine wine is tied with the hopes of the Jewish people for their coming rescuer, Messiah. Let me show you from Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, so this is written 700 years before Jesus came along. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Next one. He, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day. They're looking forward here. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So you see in the Old Testament, the hope for the messianic age, the, the hope for this new era, era when, the, when the Savior King was going to come, that's tied up with this feast where there's going to be that kind of a fine wine. So let's piece these three clues together. The six stone water jars. What's this showing us? This is showing us that Jesus has come to a new era. It's not complete yet. And it's in these water jars that the wine of this new age, this fine wine, is being made. And then the, the master of the feast. It was good before, but now it's even better. And the hoped for fine wine. You see, what I think is being said in this miracle is that Jesus has come to start a new age, and it's a fine wine kind of an age. And we don't look at this and say, well, the Old Testament stuff, that means that this is saying the Old Testament stuff is rubbish. And we don't know. It was good. It was fine. The, 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 the good wine was there. But this wine, 
is even better. The fine wine of the messianic, this, this age, this new era of Jesus is even better. It's a new era and it's time to celebrate. It's a new, it's a new, new part in history. I think about new eras. Um, this, this is a picture of the Berlin Wall. Berlin Wall was put up or started to be put up in, I think, the early 1960s. And for many people, the Berlin Wall signified the rise and the strength of communism, or at least the growth of communism, but it also signaled for many people that the Cold War as well, and, and was kind of associated with that. And so this divided a country, it divided people, uh, but we know in November of 1989, the Berlin Wall came crashing down. And with it came, it was because it, it symbolized the, the, the fall of communism, the end of the Cold War, so it was time for people to celebrate, because a city was now reunited, a country was reunited, and people all over the world began to celebrate. Here's one of my favorite pictures of the fall of the Berlin Wall. This, this is the hordes of people traveling across the border to go and spend time with loved ones that they hadn't spent time with in a long time. This is an amazing picture. Hordes of people, traffic jam. People were celebrating. People celebrated the reunion of a city, the reunion of a country. And it wasn't just the country celebrating, it was the entire world. And what people were saying was, this is a new era for our people. This is a new era for our country. This is a new era for the world, a new era of hope. This is going to be so much better. And what we have in this first sign of Jesus is that same thing. Jesus has come to bring a new era. It's a better kind of an era. The wine before was good, but this is fine wine. This is the good kind of wine. This isn't your six-pound Sainsbury's house wine of Beaujolais. This is a fine wine kind of an era. This is your 1998 Chateau Neuf de Pape with, with infusions of black truffle, layers of white ripe fruit, and notes of dark chocolate. It's a fine wine kind of an era. And that's what's being said here. It was good before, but this kind of a wine, it's even better. Jesus' era is a better kind of an era. This is the era of the new covenant. This is the era where God's grace has gone global. This is a fine wine era because it means now full and final forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. This is a fine wine era. It's a fine wine era because it's about the indwelling of the Spirit inside of all people and God's presence resides in His people, not just in the temple. It's, it's a fine wine era because God has revealed Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a fine wine era because the hopes of Israel can now rest in their Messiah, Jesus. It's a fine wine era because the life that couldn't be found in the law can now be found in Jesus. It's a fine wine era because the condemnation that the law had brought finds its remedy in Jesus. It's a fine wine era because the righteousness that the law demonstrated can now be seen in Jesus. The new era, we have an ultimate and better high priest. Can you see that it's a new fine wine kind of an era? That's what Jesus is saying in this miracle. He's come to bring about a new covenant, a new kind of an era. God's grace is now going global. It's a big deal. So Jesus came to start a new era, but there's more here. Jesus came to state. He came to state his power to transform. State his power to transform. Have a, have a look at how John finishes this sign in verse 11. He kind of concludes it, gives an evaluation or a summary. He says here, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. 
See that? Manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, that's what John wants to see throughout all of this, is that he wants to see the reader come to a belief in Jesus. He he wants them to, to read this and say, oh yeah, Jesus really is who he says he is. I get it. That's what John wants. And he says right here, the disciples get it. Do you? But what does Jesus manifest here? He says, manifests his glory. Let's think about that word glory for a bit. Because we use that word a lot, don't we? We use it in our prayers. We sing about the glory, which God be glorified. You say, God, to, to God be glory, don't we? we? We say that. Oh, in our prayers, may you be glorified, Lord. Oh, we might even say the purpose of my life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We use that word a lot, but do we actually know what it means? Do we know what glory means? I mean, I think it's important if we're saying the word that we know what it means, but how do we define it? How do we get a sense for glory? I think if we could define glory, we'd put it like this. Glory is God's supreme greatness. And when God's glorified, it's when his supreme greatness goes public and can be seen. Okay, okay, that's God's, God's glory is his supreme greatness. That's great. But that still feels a little bit up in the air. How do we define it a little bit further? I mean, I mean God's supreme greatness, how do we see it? How do we get a sense of it? Well, the answer is we get a sense of God's glory and his supreme greatness when we see what God does. You know, so often you can look at a sunset and you've ever thought to yourself, that's God's glory on display. It's a good thing to say because you're recognizing I can see God's supreme greatness in his creative work right here. Think about the word beauty, for example. If you, you 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 try and summarize the word beauty. I find it really difficult to try and define that. Well, beauty is when you... Beauty is when you see, beauty is when you, uh, it's, it's really difficult for me to try and define the word beauty. But I think one of the best ways you can define what you mean about beauty is, is when you see something beautiful, you say, that is what I mean about something beautiful. That is beautiful. So when you see beauty displayed, you would be able to define it a bit better. You know, beauty is when you see a beautiful multicolored sunrise after two weeks of constant drizzle. Beauty is the first tulip in the garden in spring. It brings a bit of color. Uh, Beauty is an all-out and willing embrace from a grandchild as they jump up into your lap. Beauty is the the cold waves of the sea on a hot summer's day as the waves lap around your ankles. Beauty is the silence after the kids have gone to bed. The beauty is the faithful and regimented oak trees that stand in the fields in this part of the world. Beauty is the brushstrokes and the shadows of Rembrandt's work. Beauty is the smell of the air in the place that you grew up. Do you see what I mean? You can try and define beauty, but it's much easier to define when you begin to talk about beautiful things. The same is true for God's glory. We use the word, we know it means his supreme greatness, but how do we get a handle on that? We get a handle on it when we see God's hand at work, when we see his supreme greatness, and we can say, that is his glory. That is his supreme greatness going public. I can see it. And I think John's doing the same thing. God's glory right here in this wedding in Cana. I can see his supreme greatness because Jesus has just done a powerful work of transformation. I think that's what John is saying here. He's saying we can see this glory of Jesus manifest right here because he has gone about and he's transformed. He's not just transformed water into wine. It's not just old wine into fine wine. No, Jesus has gone about transforming history. A well-known theologian, Leon Morris, says about this. He says, 
This particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. God's glory is made manifest. You can see it because Jesus has just done a transforming work. But here's something to bring it down to earth. If Jesus can transform history, then he can just about transform anything. And maybe some of you need to hear that this morning. Because I think sometimes we get a little bit frustrated with ourselves, frustrated with others, frustrated with something in life because we're not seeing it transform in the way we want it to transform. This surely shows us that Jesus has a power to transform. And if he can transform history, then he can transform you. Jesus can transform nations. Jesus can transform cities, towns, and villages. Jesus can transform a church in the middle of fields. Jesus can transform a family. Jesus can transform a marriage. Jesus can transform your life. Jesus can transform a workplace. Jesus can transform relationships. Do you see there is a power of transformation associated with Jesus in this first sign? I think so often we find ourselves in a place where we say, I don't know if it's possible to transform. I'm really frustrated with him. I'm really frustrated with her. I'm really frustrated with me. I'm really frustrated with them, all that. And we begin to find ourselves in a place. I think it's a very dangerous place to say, oh, it will never change. It's a very dangerous place to be, to say it will never change. What are you saying about the power of Jesus? He has a power to transform, and we see it right here. You know, it's possible then. It's possible for things to change. It's possible to become tender-hearted where you were once callous and insensitive. It, it's possible to stop being dominated by bitterness and anger instead be characterized by peace. It's possible to become a loving person no matter what your background has been. It's wonderfully freeing because it frees us from this terrible fatalism that says that change is impossible for me. But it is. It can happen. It frees us from a mechanistic, mechanistic views that that my background is my destiny. But that's not true. A, f- a famous uh, Christian counselor called Warren Watson, after 40 years of counseling, writes this. And it's an extended quote, but follow me. On any given day, I hear stories of parental abuse, parental abandonment, marital infidelity, uh, women who've been sexually traumatized, men and women who regularly struggle with pornography and chemical addiction, numerous cases of relational manipulation, or the sudden loss of loved ones. Most of all, I deal with shame, particularly uh, of those who have suffered abuse and abandonment. They battle internal thoughts that they have little value or worth because of the messages they've come to believe about themselves and the whispers from their real-world experience about their worth, messages which rise straight from the pit of hell. But, But no matter how often you hear or or read between the lines that people never really change, that they will always be who they've always been, that this marriage is destined to be hard, that this sin will never be conquered. No matter how much you hear Satan's lies, he writes, don't believe them. I have seen real change. You can change. She can change. God himself came, died, rose, ascended, and gave his spirit. Do you see that change is indeed possible? I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning who needs to hear that. In this miracle, we see that there is a transformational power associated with the person of Jesus Christ. Change, transformation is possible. You see, Jesus came to state his power to transform, not just history, but people too. Isn't that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians? 
I'm a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That shows us inherent within the gospel. Change is possible. But there's one more thing here that we see Jesus came to do. John shows us. Jesus came to show the way to his feast. Might seem like a strange thing to say, but have a look what Jesus responds to Mary. When Mary says there's no more wine, look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Look at this key bit. My hour has not yet come. You see what we have at this wedding is, is something of the specialness and the surprise of this new fine wine, but there's also something sorrowful. Yes, it's a wonderful occasion, but there's something woeful going on under the surface. I mean, and that can happen in weddings sometimes. You know, weddings can be the most amazing places of celebration. We love it. Dance till the early hours of the morning. It's fantastic. But you know, at many weddings, there, there can be an undercurrent of pain in that. You, you, you miss loved ones or remind you of a, of a painful relationship that might have been had. Or even for the parents, it can be really, really hard as they remember, oh, I remember the days that little one jumped in, up into my lap when they were five years old and told me about their day, and now they're flying the nest. There can be this undercurrent of pain sometimes. Well, this is true of this wedding as well. There's going to be the surprise, the party's going to continue, but there is pain in the midst of it. Why? Because Jesus' mind is elsewhere. Do you ever have those moments when your mind is elsewhere? We call it daydreaming, whatever you want to call it. But, but I have those moments all the time where I'm supposed to be reading, writing an email, I'm supposed to be making a phone call, re- whatever it is, and I just gaze out of the window and then I hear these voices but I can't quite hear them. And James, after James, wake up, wake up, James, back into the room and I'll snap into it. What, what happens to us is our mind is elsewhere. I think what's going on at this wedding is there is an undercurrent of sorrow in amidst this surprise of the wine. It, it's wonderful but it's woeful. Because Jesus' mind is elsewhere. How do we know? My hour is not yet come. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus' hour is the cross, over and over again. So in the middle of this wedding, Jesus is thinking about the cross. But why is he thinking about the cross? Why, why, why the cross right here in the midst of this celebration, turning water into wine at the beginning of his ministry? Why, why the cross? We know also Jesus is referred to throughout the New Testament as the bridegroom. Now, you can turn over the page to halfway, uh, three quarters of the way through uh, John chapter 3, and we read about Jesus being the bridegroom. At the handful of times bridegroom is used in the New Testament, it speaks about Jesus. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, now why is that term used of Jesus? Well, very simply, we find that God's people are Jesus' bride, and, and we're engaged to Jesus. That's the kind of metaphor that's used for Jesus and the church, Jesus and his people. And, and we look forward to one day of this giant marriage supper of Jesus when we will f- be fully, finally, and ultimately embraced by our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, at the end of Revelation, you, you don't have to turn there, at the end of Revelation, chapter 18, we read about Jesus being a bridegroom. And then Revelation, chapter 19, is about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it talks about God's people. His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And again in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw a holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, the hope of God's people right here is that we're looking forward to the marriage supper of Jesus. So let's connect the dots a little bit. Jesus is thinking about the cross, but how do we see this in light of John's further writing in Revelation and in his gospel in the New Testament? Well, Jesus is the bridegroom. You see what's going on in the midst of this feast is Jesus is looking forward to his feast. Jesus is looking forward to his marriage supper when he, as the bridegroom, will get that full and final embrace with his bride, his people. So he's looking forward to the feast, but what does he see? He sees the path that he's going to have to walk to get there. He sees that on the way to the feast, he's got to go through the cross. And that's why there's sorrow in the midst of this celebration, is that he knows he's got to go through the cross. He's going to endure God's opinion of our sin on the cross. He's going to go through hell on our behalf so that we can be forgiven and set free and renewed and washed and cleaned and given a sure and unshakable hope. Do you see this? Jesus sees he has to go through the cross in order to get to the feast. You see what's happening here? Is is that Jesus is sipping on sorrow in the midst of the joy of this wedding feast so that people like you and me can sip on the joy of the coming wedding feast in the midst of our sorrow. Here's the gospel at play. That we're invited to a feast, but it's through the cross Jesus has to go in order to get us there. Let's bring this down to earth because this is really significant for us. Really simply this, you are invited to the feast of Jesus. You're invited to this feast. How do you get there? Through the grace of Jesus Christ that we see straight on the cross. How do you get there? through the forgiveness that's available in the person, the work, the significance of Jesus. You are invited to a feast. So what does that mean for us? Well, if you don't know Jesus this morning, let me invite you to this feast. It's going to be great. And you get there by God's grace, which is one on the cross. And if you do know Jesus this morning, you're invited to a feast. And I wonder if your life is characterized by that kind of an anticipation. I wonder if you're sipping on the joy of the feast that is to come in the midst of the heartaches of this life. You are invited to a feast. This is good news for us. And I think in this first sign of John, we're seeing that Jesus is thinking about the cross, thinking about his feast. He knows the path he has to walk to get there. So Jesus came to show the way to his feast. Now remember how signs work. Signs point beyond themselves. This sign, what do we have? Water into wine. Good wine, now fine wine. But this sign is more than that. Remember, it's got a point beyond itself. So what is it showing us? What is Jesus saying in this sign? And what's John recording? Well, he's showing us something of what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to start a new era. It's a fine wine, new covenant kind of an era. And it's good. Jesus came to state his power to transform. And if he can transform history, then he can change you. Jesus came to show the way to his feast. My hour has not yet come, and it's through the cross. You, we, are invited to a feast, and I can't wait. Let's pray together, and we'll get to sing our final song. Lord, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for the ministry of Jesus and this first sign in the Gospel of John. 
that John unpacks the significance of this event in the wedding of Cana. Lord, we pray you would help us to see something of the significance of this time. Help us to see that Jesus came to start a new era. That means history is different. Jesus came to show his power to transform. And we want to see that transformational power in play in our lives. And help us to see that Jesus came to show a way to his feast through the cross. But it's a feast we're invited to. Lord, help us to see the significance of this sign. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.